Hello, I'm Jeremy Allaire. Welcome to The Money Movement, a show where we explore the issues and ideas driving this brave new world of digital currency and blockchains. Um, today, we're going to talk about stablecoins and global financial inclusion. I think everyone uh, understands, at least at a high level, that there are enormous sectors of the population all around the world, domestically in, in the United States uh, and in markets all around the world, without access to the financial system or with varying degrees of access to the financial system. And that has a tremendous impact on people's ability to uh, gain livelihood, to store value, to participate in the economy safely. Um, and there's been this you know, very clear asymmetry that has existed between these masses of people who have access to the internet and increasingly have access to the internet through powerful smartphones and mobile devices that have become more and more affordable, but yet still do not have proper participation in the financial system. Um, and, and, and is a, a critical issue and we're gonna explore that more today. I think even those that do have some degrees of access oftentimes face uh, punitive costs, time delays, and real limitations and burdens that the average person doesn't have when dealing with things like storing money, moving money, uh, or, or even generating uh, savings. And so digital currency obviously emerged you know, nearly a decade ago and it's often been heralded as a solution to this problem, to uh, increasing financial inclusion, banking the unbanked, uh, making payments and remittances more uh, low cost, accessible, um, et cetera. But after seven years, it's been off to a slow start. Um, but now, literally, as we speak, we are starting to see this explosion in stable coins. And stable coins as stable value digital currencies, often you know, denominated in things like digital dollars, like USDC, hold really great promise uh, to actually uh, fulfill some of these broad ambitions that many in the digital currency and blockchain sector have had for the last decade. So today we're going to be exploring all of those issues as we focus in on stable coins and global financial inclusion. So this week, we are joined by several guests um, who bring a very wide range of perspectives on the potential uh, for stable coins to broaden access to the global financial system for billions of people, uh, including Harish Nadarajan uh, of the World Bank, Danelle Dixon, uh, who is the CEO and executive director of the Stellar Foundation, and startup founder Tristan Cole, an Australian-based uh, startup uh, back uh, called Sempo, uh, which is really at the cutting edge of using stable coins in disbursements uh, to those without banking. Um, so to kick this off, uh, we're going to zoom out into a global view with Harish, uh, who's the lead for payment systems development at the World Bank, who spent a lot of time focused on these issues over a, a long period of time. Uh, and he's both you know, been analyzing and making recommendations to global leaders and policymakers uh, around these topics. Uh, welcome, Harish. Um, uh, hi, hi, Jeremy. How are you doing? I'm, I'm very good. Thanks for joining us today. Yes, yeah, so thank you. Thank you for, uh, for inviting. It's a pleasure to be here. Excellent. Well, so first, you know, I, I want to uh, maybe sort of have you talk a little bit really broadly about 
the problem space. You know, what is the challenge that the world faces in terms of participation in the global financial system? Um, uh, uh, Jeremy, there are broadly maybe um, five different uh, kind of uh, kind of uh, challenges which I would uh, I would like to outline. The first one is is clearly about financial ex exclusion. I think you already alluded to that. Uh, this is to a large extent, of course, it is a it is a problem of the emerging markets and developing economies, but certainly not restricted to them. There are of course pockets of uh, financial exclusion even in even in high income countries. And just to quote some statistics uh, based on the data which we gather at the World Bank. Uh, on uh, uh, what you call as the FINDEX survey, which basically measures the number of people who have access to the most basic level of financial inclusion of uh, access to an account. You know? uh, so that is about 63% in lower income and middle income countries uh, as of 2017, 2018. Uh, and for high income countries, it was about 93.7%. So it kind of shows the gap uh, between the low income and the high income countries, but also at the same time, it shows that even in high income countries, it's not 100%. Right? So that's, that's uh, perhaps the, the very first one. The second one is also the limited usage of even people who have access uh, to uh, to kind of an account, uh, the limited usage of um, uh, use, use of that for making digital payments. Uh, and there, kind of, um, uh, as for the statistics we are tracking, less than 50% uh, in the lower income, middle income countries actually use it for making digital payments versus around 90% in the high income countries. And the third area is about access to finance. Uh, this is about, I'm talking about savings instruments, credit, um, investment, insurance, and so on. There, the gap is actually even bigger between uh, between low-income, middle-income countries and high-income countries. And here, I'm talking about both individuals and uh, and businesses. Uh, and here, for example, on on savings, the gap is like 20% for low-income countries versus um, 50, 54, 55% for high-income countries. And similarly, borrowing from a regulated financial institution is just about 15% uh, in lower-income and middle-income countries. And then there's a gap of over $5 trillion for, um, for SMEs in terms of the financing gap for them. And this is 1.3 times the current level of funding. So it kind of shows the gap in terms of what is the demand versus what is the supply. Uh, and then the fourth area is about cross-border payments. And you alluded to that. It is slow, it's opaque, it is costly. Uh, the only aspect of cross-border payments, which is currently very diligently measured is on remittances and which the World Bank yeah. uh, has, has a monitoring mechanism for that. And then as per our, our estimates, the cost of selling $200 is around 6.7% now. It is a significant improvement from the past, but still uh, way too high. No? And then the last one is, I think this is not much talked about, and I call it the case of an ignored middle in the, in the cross-border payments world. So if you segment the market, you have the uh, larger corporates, right? So um, who, are, who have access to multinational banks, and for them, I think the world is not so bad, right? The experience of cross-border payments is not necessarily that bad. And then at the bottom end, you have remittances, which are, of course, expensive uh, based on the statistics I quoted you, but at least it's a functioning market. So there are services available. You can send money uh, to most of the countries um, kind of almost instantaneously, even if it is based on cash origination and cash disbursement, at least people are able to not get notified that the money is available and they're going to be able to withdraw. So it's a functioning market. And inefficient uh, though, but uh, it's still functioning. But there's this middle, uh, which is not being fully served. And these are the new age services like uh, freelance workers who are coming in from right. emerging markets, uh, small merchants and small businesses who are participating in the global value chains. And for them, the experience of cross-border payments is really rocky. Right? It's really, uh, they're not being served well. And, uh, and I think uh, for them, the experience is really bad. So I, I, would, I would say these are perhaps the five areas, yep. uh, at least the ones from my vantage point. There's, 
an incredible amount of work to do clearly. Yes, indeed. <laughs> I mean, it seems like the, um, there's sort of, we all kind of take for granted sort of the utility value that we see in, in the financial system, uh, living in a developed market, for example. And it really feels like whether you're an SME or an individual on a vast scale, like really harnessing the utility value of money is harder. It's more expensive. Yeah. Uh, it's more difficult. And in some cases, just completely non, non-existent. Exactly. Yeah. Um, that's that's extremely helpful context, um, and, and really, you know, again, kind of zooming out, looking at the data, looking at the the gap that we have, um, and and as I said, I think, you know, a lot of us have um, come from the technology world and the internet world and the software world into this because we we want to solve some of these problems. Um, you also alluded to, you know, the, the fundamental technology innovations that have been happening: digital payments, uh, mobile payments. Obviously, we've seen rising levels of participation because of that. And, and obviously in, in some cases, you know, incredible leapfrogging even in, in uh, developing markets. Um, but we still obviously, just given what you've just shared, we have the, these sort of profoundly uneven access um, and, and, it, and it's across a lot of different dimensions of, of the utility. But I, I wanna focus in a little bit on this immediate opportunity. So how can digital currency, uh, and in particular, um, you know, stable coins and, and what, you know, the IMF describes as sort of hybrid central bank digital currency models where you've got private sector actors, uh, you know, operating digital currency environments, but in, in concert with the central bank money, uh, which is obviously an, an emerging phenomenon. But, but just as we look at these global stable coins, things like USDC, things like Libra that are on the horizon, how do you see that transforming access to financial services? Yes, no, I think I think here uh, maybe a, a kind of uh, a kind of maybe a little bit of um, kind of contextualization here, right? So when when, when we uh, when we look, I think it'd be good to segment the market, right? So let's take about think about people who currently do not have access to uh, to accounts, who do not have access to payment services, and I think uh, if you go behind uh, and ask and go behind the reasons why people do not have access and why they're not using, you get some very interesting information, right? So in some cases, like it is about lack of funds, and this is more or less uh, basically, it not, doesn't necessarily mean that they don't have any money, it, it just means that uh, kind of the, the amount of money they have is perhaps not enough to typically justify a large amount of fees and, and so on, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and then it is too expensive, that it is um, uh, kind of the documentation requirements required to open an account, et cetera, is, is mm -hmm. too onerous uh, for them. So I think there are a lot of fundamental reasons behind it, right? So mm -hmm. any solution which has to address this problem yeah. has to address this, right, those, those issues. And uh, the way I see it now, I think the digital currencies and stable coins, et cetera, do not necessarily address these issues to some extent, maybe on the, on the cost side, uh, but not necessarily on the other issues I mentioned. So that is one, one segment of people, right? The other segment of people are people who have, who are able to meet all these requirements, but simply they do not have efficient mechanisms for them to use and make payments. And I think there clearly, uh, I think all these different designs has a role to play. And there again, we have to also look at it against all the other innovations which are also happening. You know, that we have fast payment systems kind of being developed worldwide. There are APIs, open banking, which are coming out. I think one has to really compare this against that and see uh, which which one really moves forward. Maybe taking the specific case of uh, say cross-border payments, right? So I, I see a role for um, for digital currencies to potentially play a bridging mechanism to kind of bridge between the currencies in the sending side and the receiving side expanding the pool of entities who are able to offer uh, services. So currently you are only relying on 
uh, the money transfer operators, and then you have relying on the large correspondent banks. But I think this model of digital currencies can bring in new players, uh, all the crypto exchanges and so on, and subject to them being properly regulated, meeting all those AML CFT requirements and foreign exchange and capital controls. I think they really expand the market and yeah. give more options and are perhaps a better design. You know? yeah. uh, but the caveat from my side is they have to meet the, the key requirements uh, the, uh, from a regulatory perspective, and they are there for a good reason. And, and I think any solution has to, has to uh, either meet them or obviate the need for them, but not circumvent. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're clearly seeing um, this burst in sort of digital cash innovation and, and on-chain uh, stablecoins are an example of that. And, and we're seeing obviously uh, global regulatory frameworks, the FS, FSB recommendations, other things, FATF recommendations, these sort of regulatory regimes saying, hey, this is this is great innovation. We got to make sure, you know, uh, you, you, you know, intermediaries can meet their obligations and so on. But um, we're obviously seeing organically uh, very, very fast growth in, in demand, um, in particular for these these digital dollars, which which actually maybe leads to um, another uh, another kind of high level question, which is, um, you know, in this world where um, you know digital currencies exist like digital content and digital data on the internet, um, a, a given digital currency can exist everywhere that the internet exists, and so. You know, in theory, the, the Chinese digital currency, if you have a, a software wallet that could support it, you could connect uh, directly and settle a liability with the Central Bank of China from any mobile phone in the world. Um, again, these digital currencies built on the public internet, whether it be, you know, permissioned or public blockchains, um, really create some interesting, you know, meta level issues uh, for, for kind of how we think about global currency models. And you know, do we believe that the the advent and growth of of uh, you know digital currencies based on the major worlds, uh, the major reserve currencies of the world, are, are going to drive us towards more, you know, whether it be dollarization or something else? Um, you know, what do you see emerging in that arena? Right. I, I think you know, clearly the technology is showing what is possible and what is feasible uh, from a pure technological perspective. Uh, and on that itself, I think one also, as I was saying earlier, one needs to contextualize that against um, what are the other innovations that are happening, and I would perhaps classify them as incremental innovations, you know, in the sense they're building on the existing system. Right. Um, and so kind of things like the SWIFT Global Payments Initiative, then there are interconnections of payment infrastructures which are, which are happening in many parts of the world. Uh, there are also new institutions coming in uh, to pay platforms for interconnecting different national payment systems, in particular the fast payment systems on, on both sides. So there are various incremental innovations that are happening. And on that, of course, the uh, kind of taking a complete uh, clean break and looking at a global currency model is, of course, another alternative. You know? But the amount of coordination and implementation challenges there raises the question of which will be faster, which will be much more tangible results uh, immediately versus the medium-term, long-term issue, right? And also other issue which has to be looked at is financial sector regulations are very jurisdiction specific. Right? Um, so the world is, um, can be united through a network and uh, from a technology perspective, but from financial sector regulations, there are different jurisdictions and there are different regulations. There are certain areas on which there is harmonization globally, but clearly uh, there are, there's a desire to maintain control over the broader macroeconomic framework within yeah. those jurisdictional boundaries. So any global currency model has to take those into account. You know? yeah. uh, and any, anything has to come up with the proper global coordination and governance structure uh, to ensure some of the um, benefits on uh, which have been achieved through having control are not lost. Right? 
So I think the technology is pointing us in a direction of what is feasible. And I think we have to see what is practical given the other considerations, the broader policy objectives we have. Yeah, yeah, without a doubt. Uh, the internet continues to collide with nation states and, uh, and create a lot of really fun policy challenges for, for everyone, whether it's data and privacy or cybersecurity or money. Um, you know, all, all these things that, that really get stirred up. Um, well, uh, Harish, this has been a, a really excellent conversation. Your, your high-level perspective here is very, very deeply appreciated uh, and, and helps really set the stage for both the problem space and, and some of the challenges uh, that we need to move through to, to get through this. So really appreciate you uh, coming on the program today. Thank you, Harish. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Absolutely. So some of some of these numbers obviously are staggering. Um, you know, access to savings or credit, um, proper participation in the financial system, uh, costs that are you know orders of magnitude higher than what what many folks deal with on a domestic payment basis. Um, really, really significant. Um, but that really helps guide us forward, I think, in terms of really solving what we think here is a major problem in the world. Um, and so, you know, with that, I, I wanna kind of turn now to a practical, uh, more hands-on view of how stable coins and blockchains can help solve some of these problems. And I'm very pleased to welcome Donnell Dixon, CEO of the Stellar Foundation, uh, a project who are, quote, creating equitable access to the global financial system. Hello, Donnell. Hi, Jeremy, so great to be here. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Uh, really nice to see you and really appreciate you uh, joining today. Um, well, you know, maybe we'll start a little bit with you. Um, you've spent a lot of your career helping to foster open access to information, including, I think, driving some really significant internet companies, uh, technologies that touched hundreds of millions of people. Maybe just start with talking a little bit about what drew you into the digital currency realm and, and, and why mm -hmm. blockchains, why this problem right now? Yeah, it's very much the same as why I went into the the uh, the space of the web and what I call the content side of the web to begin with. I think that so much there we had promised to be able to create access to information and ideas and innovation for everyone all over the world. And I think that, you know, taking all of those learnings and, and some of the things that we did wrong on the content side of the web, I think that, uh, you know, we handled privacy in a way that we said regulators stay away from us. We actually uh, don't need your help to figure out privacy. And I think we were wrong uh, when we first did that. I think um, to be able to take those learnings and move that over to another part of uh, a technology that can actually have even greater impact because it's dealing with money and access to uh, the financial system, which we take for granted, I think, from where we sit, uh, just creates an opportunity to be able to do this side right. And what I mean by that is to engage with regulators all over the world to help to create and foster those relationships, to not look to like supplant, but look to enhance a financial system that exists today. Uh, so there's just so much opportunity here. And I think blockchain being, uh, you know, when I first started, it's, it's, I've been in this space for a little over a year. And when I first started, I used to call it nascent technology. I don't think it's nascent anymore. I think it's like pretty, it's, it's pretty picked fast. up. Yeah, it's picked up pretty quickly and moved. And so I feel like using this technology layer, which frankly, not not everyone in the world needs to understand that layer of technology, much like you don't need to understand the underpinning, underpinnings of the internet, but you need to be able to, to gain uh, benefits and to derive value from it. And that's our goal. And so for me, that's just crazy exciting. 
Yeah, it really is. I mean, I think um, both of us have have uh, the the perspective of of these other phases of the internet, and we can see the analogies. We can see where 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 things break and so on. But um, yeah, I mean, everyone uh, opens up their mobile phone and can get to all the content everywhere and have access to all the world's knowledge. And they, you know, uh, young people sort of grow up with it, take it for granted, and it's just like, of course, there's infinite knowledge that I can access uh, with like a voice command. Um, but uh, but you know I think probably in in ten years right if if you're successful if we're all successful um, people say the same thing about the way that they interact with the economy the way that they interact uh, with, with with money so um, I want to I want to focus in on um, the work you're doing really specifically uh, with the Stellar Foundation and and I mentioned the the mission in introducing you creating equitable access to the global financial system talk about that mission. And, and talk about how you, you know, are starting to tackle that, that very, very immense problem, that problem that uh, Harish helped uh, articulate for us in the numbers. Yeah, no, that was awesome to hear those numbers. I mean, we focus on just a, a few of those numbers in terms of 1.7 billion adults globally uh, are unbanked. And so from our standpoint, if you think about that number, but then you juxtapose that with two thirds of them actually have mobile devices. Right. And so if we can actually take those two numbers and put them together and try to solve that problem, yeah, like you can then you can see where the value of something like this can happen um, and, and folks can get access to it. So for us, we tried to synthesize our mission into that one sentence, uh, creating equitable access to the global financial system, recognizing, though, that that's a mission that takes a really long time to accomplish. So you kind of got to break it up in bite sized chunks. Yeah. And so for us now, what we're focused on is really uh, developing what we call a minimum viable or even larger um, ecosystem to think about making sure all the players in that whole stack are there so that this technology layer can actually really be pushed out to the world in a way that's um, that can solve some of the problems uh, that we just heard about this morning and you got to think about it as again like there's this underpinning which is the blockchain but then there's stable coins which you obviously know so much about and how those stable coins interact and create the opportunity to go from fiat currency to digital currency back to fiat so if you so choose and to go in and, off and on and off the blockchain, what we really need to do from, uh, you know, Stellar is a public blockchain. Um, and what we really need to do is create those, what we call in our ecosystem anchors. Mm -hmm. So those on ramps and off ramps um, that you can actually get in and out of the blockchain from fiat to digital, digital to fiat. And so our focus, the bite-sized chunk that we're focused on, at least for this year, is really developing even more. We have many that are already participants in the ecosystem. Yeah, I've seen that. Yeah. A lot of activity in, in, in the stablecoin space with Stellar. And we, have a, and, and we would like a lot more, even Circle. We would like Circle. Um, so we, to, have this, to have these uh, corridors open so that you can actually see payment channels and you can see uh, folks actually interacting and using this for remittances and just for cross-border payments. It's, um, it's already pretty great, but it's that bite-sized chunk of growing that anchor uh, base and, and, and creating the financial institutions, which aren't necessarily banks. They're a lot, they, they come in different shapes and forms. They're all regulated on the edges, and so that's an important piece because regulators know how to deal with money. Um, and so I think that's an important component too. So that's our core focus is to work with regulators to get them comfortable with right. blockchain generally and to get them to understand that this is actually enhancing their system and their uh, ability to be able to provide even more access to their constituents. That makes uh, a lot of sense, uh, familiar territory. Um, I, I think, um, uh, you know, w when that happens, if you, you sort of see that the, the sort of um, the digital wallets lighting up, the on and off ramps lighting up. Um, you know, what does that look like to those 
you know, um, I guess the 70% the, the of the 1.7 billion or whatever, the 1.2 billion, what does that look like for them? What, what becomes possible for them as that happens? So I think that's a, it's, a, it's such an important question and I think about it all the time. I think about it in like the World Bank example. If you think about um, folks out there in the world who don't have bank accounts, but you can actually, they can have a wallet and they actually don't need to understand that there's, they can if they so choose, but don't need to be able to understand all the inner workings of blockchain. But if their wallet allows them to take their currency to convert it to digital and then to send it to family that's in some other region. Uh, it's actually that simple. Or if the World Bank, for example, were to lend money using a digital wallet uh, and, or a digital currency that they control, and then it gets all the way down to the farmer that's doing the actual work through a wallet. Right. Um, again, and that farmer doesn't, can't, he can or she can know, but they don't need to know how this all came to be. Right. It's just another layer of technology that they get used to. For these, for, for so many of these people, right, that they, they can turn on WhatsApp or they can turn on their phone, they can click a, a URL and, and get to content and, and do all these things. They, they sort of take it for granted that they have the world in their hand. Um, and then there's this missing piece. So we're, we're really trying to fill in, uh, fill in that layer. Um, and, and again, encouraging signs. I think as, as you talked about, there are these sort of layers and getting these pieces in place. And I, I look at, you know, things like public blockchains and then stable coins as sort of building blocks for this new global financial system, this new more opening and inclusive global financial system. Um, and a lot, there's a lot of uh, talk about, you know, the sort of value exchange piece, getting value from point A to point B, taking the cost out, making it easier, more access. But what are the next layers that get built? Um, you know, again, hearing Harish talk about the disparities in terms of access to other financial services, you know, are, are those the next layers that, that come once we get this value exchange layer kind of uh, dealt, dealt with? I think it's the, the, so if you think about what does it mean for someone who doesn't have a bank account and can't get access to a bank account, the most important thing for them is to be able to access something that's simple, clean, easy to use. I think what we haven't done enough of on uh, the blockchain side is using applications, but focusing on those applications from the user standpoint mm -hmm. and just ease of use and simplicity. So I do think we need to have that, those wallets that I, we have many of them um, that are out there in the world already. Uh, but then we also need to be able to have, we just, uh, a company DStock is actually launching and they're, um, they're able to allow folks in all parts of the world to be able to purchase uh, shares of stock in mm. the US, but from everywhere in the world. Those are the kinds of things that really opens right. up the, the infrastructure and the ability to really derive value. Um, so it's these applications that come in. Again, from a, it has to, they have to be simple from the user standpoint. Um, and then they just open up opportunity. What about if you could hold assets? We already have this in, 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 on, um, on some chains where you can hold assets and, and get interest with right. those assets. Right. And so you don't have to have a bank account to do that because some folks can't get to the banks. I mean, it's hard for us to understand this, but yeah. in other countries, banks aren't just on the corner. Right. Uh, so these are just, uh, these kinds of applications are going to allow users to be able to just feel like they're present in this ecosystem that they've never been a part of before. Yeah, that's, that's a, it's a, it's a great vision. Speaking of vision, um, you know, paint a picture for, for us all of, of what you see in, in, in three years, in five years. We're seeing acceleration. It's taken a while to get here, but lots of stuff are kind of coming in place. What, what, do, what, do you, what, do you hope, what do you hope that we see? 
So I think it's so funny because I was just thinking this morning, I, we're, we're doing a, a webinar next week on um, anchors and anchors again are those financial institutions like for example, Circle who's issu issuing stable coins or they can provide an on and off ramp. They're, they come in different shapes. We have 1400 folks attending from all over the globe because everyone's interested in how they can be part of this and become part of this, this system. So I feel like we're gonna have all of these, I love the way that you think about lighting, lighting these visions up all around the world. We're gonna have all these endpoints that you can see lit yeah. up all around the world. Yeah. And then I really do believe it's, it's gonna take some time, just like for example, you know, email, if you think about this as uh, the blockchain in the same way email, you could yeah. send email, not just within one um, walled garden, you could send it outside all these, all, to all the different walled gardens. That is what I think we're going to see. So we're gonna be able to see corridors open up people really being involved and part of the ecosystem. And then I think we'll see a lot more folks come in to develop these applications that we talk about from the user standpoint. So really solving user problems. So we're laying the foundations. You guys are, we yeah. are in terms of here's the foundational technology that you can use. And now we just need like all these innovative, creative folks out there to be thinking about ways to engage. And that's what I think we're gonna see in the next three years. I uh, wholeheartedly agree. Um, it's it re really, really nice to, 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 to hear your thoughts on this. Uh, Danelle, it was great to have you on. Thank you so much and look forward to seeing you really soon. Thanks, Jeremy. Take care. Absolutely. So I, I think um, this, this sort of vision of these layers getting built and the, the kind of blockchain layer, the stablecoin layer, these new types of, of markets that are uh, available. And then, you know, this is all fundamentally open public infrastructure that creators, um, engineers, software creators, designers can build on top of much like we, you know, kind of collectively built out the experience of the web. So very, very interesting time for developers, um, very interesting time for, for creators um, as these layers, you know, come into place and uh, we can all kind of hack on the global financial system a bit. Um, I, I actually want to, speaking of, of, of building, I want to turn now to a startup entrepreneur who's very much hands-on building and delivering solutions for financial inclusion using stablecoins um, and, and doing this in partnership with global NGOs such as Oxfam. Very pleased to welcome uh, Sempo uh, co-CEO uh, Tristan Cole. Welcome, Tristan. Uh, th thanks, Jeremy. It's a pleasure to be on. And I, I have to double thank you because I believe um, it is very late for you in Australia. Yeah, very late or, or very early. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, all right, all right. Is this early, I guess? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, you're gonna go for a run after this? Uh, we'll see, Prob probably not. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's quite early here. It's uh, a pleasure to be on. Thanks, Tristan. Um, uh, you know, I, I think that the, the backdrop uh, of, you know, big picture, what the challenges are in the world, uh, you know, a little bit on this, you know, this infrastructure is coming in place. You're now, you know, at the forefront of using, you know, cutting edge, you know, payment technologies uh, for the delivery of funds to those that are most in need of help. Maybe you could just start, talk a little bit about the mission of Sempo. Yeah, sure. You know, from our first-hand experience, we've found that cash is the most empowering thing in the world. Um, you know, when you think of uh, NGOs distributing like humanitarian assistance or, or development, a lot of what is done today is actually just giving people goods and services. Mm -hmm. um, but 
you know, what we're seeing in the industry over, and what we've seen over the last like, decade is that slowly NGOs are, are starting to give more cash. And that's because it's more empowering, it's more transparent for donors, and you know, it's ultimately more effective for everyone. And the stat that I always like to bring up is that 70% of Syrian refugees actually sold the aid they were given to buy what they actually needed which is just astonishing that people are receiving these, these goods and NGOs are, are giving things that, you know, people, they, they think people need, but we're not, we're not sure. And right. instead they're just going out onto the market and selling it. And I, you know, that's why we, we got into it to help NGOs distribute money effectively. And, you know, to date we're, we're at over a, a run rate, a run rate of over a million transactions, you know, for aid and development working with, as you said, NGOs like Oxfam, we ran the first, uh, cryptocurrency powered aid program in, in the start of 2019 in, in Vanuatu with Oxfam Australia. And that was funded by the Australian government. You know, we've done projects with the Red Cross and, and Mercy Corps. And I think, you know, what we're trying to do is, is really focus on these, these ap application layer products. You know, how do we help these people who don't have access to financial services today? You know, you can't start a business if you don't have access to a, you know, a bank account. You can't, do all these things that we just take for granted. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I think when you when you look at um, these, you know, really incredibly challenging parts of the world, right? Remote communities, refugees, displaced uh, persons, communities, as you said, that just, they don't have any access to the banking system at all. Maybe, you know, specifically as we talk about digital currency, stable coins, et cetera, you know, um, what role can these play not just in the disbursement piece, which I think is, is, is a huge piece, sort of digital cash in people's hands, but in sort of bridging people into participating in the financial system itself. Yeah, I mean, dispersing cash is kind of the, the tip of the problem. It is, it is so hard. I mean, the, the stat that was brought up was, you know, 1.7 billion people were unbanked, right? You can't, when, when we're talking about distributing money to these people today, like best, the, the best case is, literally giving them stacks of physical cash you know ngos will go down a river you know with a pile of money in, in a backpack because that's more safe than driving a car you know they're less likely to be be attacked by say terrorists or or other entities you know and i i think that that's the start of the problem it's but what we've discovered through our work of the last three years with ngos is that it's actually this this financial exclusion mm. you know for for these people that that is causing the real the real problem you know, when, from, from some of our first-hand experience in, in Vanuatu, when we've been speaking to people there, the most exciting thing for them was these uh, plastic bills, these plastic, um, you know, bills that were being uh, swapped over from paper bills like you've got in, in the U.S. And the reason people were really excited about this was because they could, you know, people today are burying their money in Vanuatu <sighs> and as a form of savings, right? And these plastic bills won't rot. Right. So that's why they were getting so excited about it. Yeah. And you know, to us, that's just crazy. A little bit more durable. <laughs> yeah, a little, a little bit. So, I mean, when we heard that, it's like people laugh, but it's, it's true. Right. You know, and then, you know, some, some Oxfam staff we were working with, they, they were losing nearly 20% of their money when they were sending, sending funds back to their families. Yeah. So it's all these problems that just come up and, you know, we, live in the US or Europe or Australia, we, we just don't experience this firsthand. Yeah. And I think when it comes to, you know, real access to the financial system, it's the financial exclusion is causing a lot of these issues. 
but financial inclusion can be as simple as access to you know a basic transaction account on a smartphone and the reason this is so powerful is because you look at a lot of these banks and these banking branches today as as was mentioned they can be like two hours down the road you know they're not they're not accessible for right. a lot of people today needs to be entirely in your pocket obviously yeah 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 so i i, I know um you know, some of the issues that you're identifying things like um you know the, the risk of de delivering cash or the accountability I know, which is a really big issue for, for NGOs with, with, with funds distribution, um, the, the sort of accountability uh, versus tra you know, transparency, security, all, all these things, and then sort of access. It, it sounds like some of those things have led you to blockchain based stable coins um, and, and, the, and the power of those as, uh, as, as you know, a, a secure store of value, but also in a very efficient medium. Maybe talk a little bit about your journey into stable coins, how you're using them today, how you expect them uh, to, to kind of play a role in, in your initiatives uh, going forward. Yeah, sure. I mean, when, when we started looking at technologies that could really help us with a problem and that's where we came from it we had a problem that we were trying to run these cash transfer programs in really obscure parts of the world that don't have strong banking systems today um, you know we we were just looking at a, a, a bunch of different technologies and we actually started with just you know issuing issuing credits on a centralized database and we we're like okay that's that's cool that can work um, and that's how a lot of systems today work you know they're just centralized databases um, but as we started to scale and, and work with, you know, larger NGOs, they started to have, you know, more expectations around trust and, and transparency of funds. Yeah. And I think when it comes to stable coins, what we're seeing in a lot of the use cases, especially with say USDC, you know, we're exploring a, a program in, in Venezuela, um, where money there just, you can't use the local currency there. People need right. access to dollars. Right. Um, and it makes, you know, something like, USDC makes it really easy for us to run those programs. Um, I think ironically, when it comes to stable coins, you know, one of the, the biggest use case really is that stability, right? Yeah. You know, if you're a small corner store who sells a $2 loaf of bread, you just can't expect to lose 25% the next week because, yeah. you know, Bitcoin dropped 25% for some obscure reason. And I think that's such a small, you know, that is the reason that they're starting to get such uptake, you know, amongst businesses yeah. and for real use cases around the world. Yeah. I mean, as people figure it out, right. They, they say, Oh, this is, this is sort of like if I have uh, you know, a messaging app, but now it's, now it's money. And, um, and uh, as I like to say, uh, people around the world are going to vote with their smartphones, uh, kind of what, what uh, financial system that they want to participate in. Um, and, yeah. and with, with that in mind, um, you know, looking out, two or three years, maybe not uh, forever, um, you know, are we uh, approaching a tipping point? And, and what might this mean for those who have really struggled to participate in uh, and have been excluded mm. from uh, the global financial system? Yeah, I, I certainly think we are. I mean, we're seeing over the last few months that COVID is really accelerating that transition to, to digital money. Um, you know, when I look out two to three years and as Sempo, I think we see like two worlds really. And one is one of privatized money, you know, what we've got today in these closed systems of, you know, these closed financial walled systems gardens, that are, uh, exactly. Yeah. 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 Walled, walled gardens run by like a single corporation, 
versus another future and another alternative, which is, you know, decentralized money that is more of a public good. Yeah. And I think, you know, when you look at those walled gardens, it, it, it is, I, I think, a little bit scary because it, when you compare it to cash, mm-hmm. you know, just physical cash, it is quite regressive. Yeah. You know, we've seen in, in Kenya, M-Pesa is just blocking entrepreneurs and, you know, businesses from accessing that, that network that is basically a public good in, in Kenya. You know, when M-Pesa goes down in Kenya, that's national news. Yeah. Um, which is just insane to think about. And it's run by a single private corporation. But yeah. M-Pesa is, can block entrepreneurs just because it doesn't, you know, agree with their business model. It doesn't align with their business model, yeah. which it, is it just. Gets, yeah. I was going to say it, it gets to this. Um, I think people are familiar with electronic money. They think, Oh, we have electronic money. Uh, yeah. Isn't that, isn't that, isn't this just electronic money? We're talking about digital cash. And, yeah. and there's really a big difference between, you know, a bare instrument that is a form of digital cash and sort of walled garden electronic money. And, um, you know, and actually central banks are quite aware of that. And it's a very delicate issue when you hear people talking about things like central bank digital currency is like, you know, I, I, um, I, I met uh, at one point with um, the product manager of cash at the Federal Reserve. And I thought that's pretty cool. There's a product manager of cash, like cash is a product. Um, and, you know, there's attributes of it that are really important. Um, and I, I think there are obviously legitimate concerns around, uh, around abuse and, and financial crime. And so I think just like the world is navigating the, 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 the sort of on a razor's edge issues of privacy, uh, issues of identity, uh, this is a razor's edge issue as well, uh, probably in the years to come. Yeah, definitely. And it's, it's interesting that you touched on central bank digital currencies, because I think you know, over the next two to three years, we will see like a, a sovereign nation issue their own you know, digital dollar or, or digital currency, which is, yeah. I think, really exciting because at the end of the day, it's something as important as money, you know, something that is tracking the credits and debits of society. You know, it needs to involve you know, everyone. It needs to involve the community. It needs to involve regulators and not just be you know, one private corporation that's running it. Totally agree. Um, Tristan, this has been great. I really appreciate your perspective. Congrats on all the success. Really hoping that you guys can continue to, to drive the kind of change that's needed um, in, in our financial system. And, and thanks again for waking up so early. <laughs> no, th- thank you, Jeremy. It's, it's been great to be on the, the podcast. Excellent. All right. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. So I, I think um, hearing from from all three of our guests today, um, you know, the, the possibilities of of an open, inclusive, uh, transparent, accessible, efficient financial system is obviously what has inspired so many of us to be builders and innovators in this space over the past decade. And more and more people are coming in. And I, I think um, there really is a sense that we can change what's possible for people everywhere. Um, And I think that was the feeling we had with the web of information and communications is the feeling we have here with this world of, of, of global digital money. And the more that our digital economy is open and inclusive and integrated, uh, the value that can be brought into the world is really tremendous. So we are, I think on the precipice of this being a reality at a really large scale. And we are tracking that obviously here at the money movement and that actually leads us into uh, next week. I'm really excited for the program next week. We are going to go in a very hands-on way into the actual movement of money, and we're going to follow stablecoins around the world from 
businesses in the US to people in Europe to Asia coming in and out of different currencies into Latin America through marketplaces to India. Um, and it's going to travel at the speed of the internet. And uh, we're going to show everyone what the power of this is and how this is so uh, such a huge significant improvement um, in that is emerging in our global financial system. So we're going to be really excited for that program. And then also uh, very excited to announce that the following week on uh, Thursday, June 25th, uh, we'll be joined by uh, the uh, former Secretary of Treasury and uh, former Chief Economic Advisor to Obama, Larry Summers, will be doing a one-on-one -on -one fireside chat to talk about these issues, talk about some of the global economic system issues, uh, the role of digital currency, uh, and get his views on this. It should be a very exciting program. We'll have more on that soon. And uh, until next week, stay well, stay safe, and stay informed. Thank you.